Welcome to the Marketing Mashup Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by HubSpot co-founder and CEO, Brian Halligan. We have a great conversation about marketing, HubSpot, what the future marketer looks like, how Brian met his co-founder, Darmesh, and loads of other marketing-related things. I hope you enjoy it. He knows what it takes to not only build a great company, but transform an industry in the process. Brian, how are you? I'm Welcome fantastic. Thank you for having me. How are you finding London so far? Wet. Wet. It is wet. <laughs> um, you, you come over here in June and we've treated you with rain. Proper proper British weather. It, exactly that. Um, yes. So I, I gave you a little intro there. That's very, very much a scripted intro. Can yep. you, in, in your own words, give me a whistle-stop tour of your career to where you are now? There's a couple of influences in my career. I spent the first 10 years as an enterprise salesperson and sales leader at a, uh, a company called PTC. And it's an enterprise software company and kind of old school software company. Uh, sold big, expensive software licenses, CAD software to companies like Toyota and Caterpillar and people like that. And that company was... Um, it was a great company, still is. Its market cap's about $13 million today, and I learned a lot there. I learned how to sell and build a sales organization, sales skills organization, that kind of thing there, and it was very much a, a machine. Next run I had was a, a company you've probably never heard of called Groove Networks, which was like the precursor to, it was like Dropbox plus Trello um, in a peer-to-peer model. And there I was running sales, but the founder of that company was quite unique. He was the father of Lotus Notes before Groove, and Groove eventually got sold to Microsoft, and he became the CTO at Microsoft. So he was a, if PTC was sort of a real sales machine company, very sales-centric, this was a very innovation-centric company. So I learned a lot about that. Then I went to business school at uh, Sloan, and then started HubSpot. So 2006 is when, when HubSpot was started. Tell me... What, why you started HubSpot? Yeah, actually, we started right in business school, and there were two ahas kind of that led to HubSpot. One was Darmesh's, and one was mine. Mine was I was spending some time working at a venture capital firm, and they had hired me because I had these two interesting startups in my background. And my job was to go around to their founders and say, you know, here's how to grow your company. Here's the playbook and how to grow it. And I'd ask them, yeah, how are you going to grow it? And they all had the same playbook. They were going to buy a list, and they were going to cold call. They were going to buy a list, and they were going to spam people. Uh, they were going to do a ton of advertising, do a big uh, PR, expensive PR firm hire, and do the, do the big trade show. And the more I watched their plays, the more I came to the conclusion that the traditional B2B marketing playbook was really busted, that everyone had caller ID, everyone had ad blocker, everyone had spam protection, people had DVRs. It was impossible to reach people. Yeah. And so I was kind of on the negative side. Darmesh at the time, he blogged his way through business school. And anytime he had an interesting class or lecture, he'd write an article about it. And I was using uh, a tool people don't really use it anymore called Alexa, to measure the traffic to the websites of all my kind of wealthy venture-backed startups and comparing it to Darmesh's crappy little blog. And his crappy little blog had a thousand <laughs> times more interest than any of my wealthy venture-backed startups. So I grew interested in it. In his blog, I kind of thought of that as humans had changed the way they were living. And instead of watching, reading newspapers, they were you know, reading blogs at the time. And they were spending a lot of time in Google and social media. And so the basic idea, the kernel that hit HubSpot, uh, that eventually led to HubSpot, was marketing was broken. Old school outbound didn't work. There needed to be a new, new school inbound that matches the way people actually shops and buy. And so that was sort of the, the nugget to, that led to it. 
Yeah, so you, you mentioned Dharmesh there. Can you tell me a little bit about how you met Dharmesh? And sure. We, we met the, the night before business school started at uh, like a student mixer at the Marriott Hotel. Uh, and I remember the moment like it was yesterday because I was, I was sitting there. It's in Boston, so I'm on my second Sam Adams, and I'm feeling good. <clears throat> and a woman walks up to me and starts kind of peppering me with questions, m- even more peppering than you are right now in this <laughs> podcast, like really peppering me. And she walked away, and I thought, well, I assumed she was a student. We didn't really get too deep into it because she was just at, she was one way. And um, and it turns out she was Darmesh's wife. And what was going on there was Darmesh is super introverted, and he hides behind the plant in the corner <laughs> of the Marriott Hotel. And he sends his wife yeah. out, who's super extroverted, to go interview people, literally interview them, and try to find someone that he might like to talk to and then bring him over to meet them. That's his sort of MO at a cocktail party. And so... The scouting report on me was not positive. She said, you'll never like him. He's a big Grateful Dead fan and a Red Sox fan. He's, he's, you'll never click. And so that's not where the, uh, the romance started. The romance between the two of us started in an HR class. We had a, a professor who assigned a project around stock option pricing, uh, which is not a very exciting topic. And Darmesh asked me to work on the project. And we went out for Indian food that day. And we figured out that, gosh, we have an awful lot in common, actually. You know, we both grew up in startups. We were both interested in what was called Web 2.0 back then. You may not remember that term. And uh, we started right there, starting to talk about uh, starting a company. Brilliant. So tell me a little bit more about the dynamic between yourself and Darmesh. You're, you're very much the face of the company, whereas Darmesh is more introverted and sure something i heard on a recent interview is that you're also an introvert yes. which surprised me because you often think of brian halligan's the ceo and then darmesh the cto but you're you're both co-founders tell me a little bit more about that uh, it's uh, so we're 13 years in and, and the relationships i think one of the we've had some success so far i think it's um a decent part of the success can be ascribed to the partnership we have. I, I think what works about it is, you know, he's very passionate and very, um, you know, he's a technologist and thinks a lot about that stuff. And I come from kind of a sales and marketing bent. And if you drew a Venn diagram, you know, there's a big circle around Darmesh with technology and I've got a big circle around sales. And in between, we have a deep, enduring, rich uh, desire to build something big and meaningful. We both like to think about strategy and disruption and things like that. And so there's a, a decent overlap, but we're very complementary in our strengths and uh, add value to each other in a unique way that creates kind of a one plus one equals three dynamic. And we just work, work well together. Um, we give each other a lot of room and help each other a lot. It's, it's a very productive relationship. Yeah, definitely. What what would you say to people starting companies? They're looking for co-founders. Do do will you have to find someone with a complementary skill set to yours that's different? That I don't think you have to, but I think, gosh, is it helpful? Because yeah. at the beginning, well, it's always just a ton of work. But at the beginning, there's only two people doing the work, and if you both have the identical skill set, it's hard to divide and conquer. Yeah. Um, in the early days of HubSpot, the way it worked was. Uh, well, he has very odd hours. He, he gets up quite late and works quite late. And so the way it would kind of work is I would do the selling and the servicing of the product, and I was the QA department, basically. 
and he was building the product in those early days. And the way it would work literally every day is kind of at the end of every day, I would sit down and I would write down, here's the list of the most egregious bugs I hit. Here's the top 10. Here's the, and here's what I'd like to you know, work on overnight. And he was great. And he would crank, and crank on it overnight, literally, and then pick it up in the morning and start working on it. And he was very productive. So it fixed all 10 of those bugs, but he'd create 11 new ones usually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, no, no. He would, he would slowly but surely make progress. And the software would get a little better each day. But we sort of had that machine rolling uh, for a long, long time. And then we used, people don't know, no one's asked me this before, but. The first version of HubSpot, when it was just Armesh and I, there were a couple of gentlemen in Egypt, of all places, uh, that we found online that were contractors that that spent a lot of time and energy working on that early, early version of HubSpot. So it was Darmesh and two guys in Egypt who really cranked overnight, every night on it. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> when, when in those early days of HubSpot... We used to, we found them through, what was Upwork called before Upwork? Uh, doesn't matter, but we found them through one of those uh, sites, and uh, they were they were decent. They got, I mean, they got an early prototype out there. That's brilliant. So yeah. the, the the early days of HubSpot, they were started from. Yes, it was us four. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. So so in, in those early days of HubSpot, um, how, how did you find your first customers? Because you're you're introducing quite a new sort of methodology with with hubspot and with with the software so how were you getting those first customers they're all friends of ours um <laughs> they're all people we went to business school with or people i used to work with in different companies who were running marketing departments then in fact i remembered an early meeting it was one of our, it was our first like real board meeting we had a spreadsheet that was the name of the account and then how we found them and there was a column that was fob and there was 70 accounts on there and like 60 of them were had check marks on fob and the board member said what's fob and Dermer <laughs> said oh that means that's friend of brian's they <laughs> 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 were there we were just tapping our network and so very early that's how we did and then what we, what we watched was that column and what we wanted we didn't want all my friends buying hubspot we wanted everyone and their brother yeah. buying it so over time over time the percentage of accounts where fob went down now it's you know vanishingly small uh, but what we wanted to see was inbound really starting to work and that flywheel really starting to crank and people reading our blog and then converting into uh, converting into leads and us calling them and turning them to customers. And that started happening. I remember it was around 60, 70 customers where that really started happening, where people I had never heard of or met, no one in the company knew, started buying HubSpot. And they were like, all right, something, something good's happening, starting to happen here. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned the term inbound. Now, yes. was inbound a thing before you... Before you started HubSpot? Inbound was not a uh, term per se. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that we don't talk a lot about, but um, one of the early debates we had inside of HubSpot was what to call this thing called HubSpot. And one of the camps involved in the debate said, we should call HubSpot internet marketing software. It's internet marketing software. And it was hard to deny that it wasn't internet marketing yeah. software. And people knew what the heck you were talking about when you said internet marketing software. And people even searched on internet marketing software. And another camp inside of HubSpot that said, no, 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 we need to create an, our own category called inbound and contrast it with outbound. And we argued about that a lot uh, in the first year of HubSpot. And finally, the inbound versus outbound camp won. And we ran with that. And I think that turned out to be a, I don't know what would have happened if we picked internet marketing software, but I think 
creating that category of inbound that really worked for us. Yeah. So what is inbound? Inbound's really the opposite of traditional marketing. It's hard to describe it in, in a way that's not the opposite. If, if traditional marketing is doing a lot of advertising and interrupting people in their daily lives, is spamming them, is uh, cold calling them, and doing these very traditional interruptive techniques, inbound is the exact opposite. How do you match the way you market with the way people shopping and buying? The timing of when we did inbound was very interesting because traditionally, uh, what people would do is they would buy an advertisement in somebody else's newspaper or they would buy an advertisement in someone's radio show or buy an advertisement in someone's TV show. And of course, you would do that to get attention because it's too expensive to start your own newspaper and too expensive to start your own radio station, too expensive to start your own TV show. But as you know better than anyone, man, is it cheap to start your own newspaper. It's called a blog. And man, is it cheap to start a podcast. I'm sure you didn't spend a lot of money setting up this rig, even though it's terrific. And man, is it cheap to start a TV show on YouTube. So the idea of creating your own content versus renting space in someone else's content, it, that it was sort of a double win that it was so much cheaper to do it that way. And you could get found and spread that content through Google, a relatively new thing at the time, and social, a very new thing at the time, and so the timing was very good and all kind of came together like a nice puzzle. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of companies, even nowadays, their marketing departments are, that they, they function almost as small media, yeah. media production companies because yep. there's so much content yep. being produced. So with, with Inbound, you essentially, you, you created a new category. In, inbound is absolutely huge now. Yep. Tell me what it was like trying to, introduce a new category to the market to introduce this this new term that no one had heard of before most people disagreed with us um and i think that's what kind of worked about it uh i mean people are just used to doing the same old thing and they don't humans inherently don't like new ideas uh and so most people disagreed but enough people agreed and violently agreed like oh yeah of course yes that's right that uh, it propelled itself. I think one of the things we realized early was the internet likes conflict and they like this good guy versus bad guy, uh, us versus them. And uh, I personally, I'm not a, a, a Donald Trump fan, for example. Uh, but if you look at our politics these days, it, the polarization really works for politicians like Trump yeah. and others, many others, not just Donald Trump. But that polarization uh, creates attention in, in, in ways that are mathematically really interesting in the Internet. And I think in the very early days of HubSpot, that, that versus really worked. It wasn't just that it was inbound in a new way, but it was inbound versus outbound, I think, really worked. In order to propel it... Uh, we created a lot of our own content. We blogged our brains out. Um, we wrote a book about it, and that's a non-trivial task, writing a book, uh, especially nights and weekends. It was a ton of work to do that. We marketed the book aggressively. We started a conference called Inbound. We still have the Inbound Conference. So we spent half of our marketing energy, calories, on Inbound and spent far less, I would say far, far more than half our calories on Inbound far less of our calories on HubSpot. And uh, that turned out to work, but it's a little bit risky. There's other companies these days that are trying to do the same thing. You've there got are. Drift at the moment. Exactly. They coined conversational marketing. And then you've and got uh, ABM, uh, account-based marketing yeah. out there, content marketing. There's a lot of these out there yeah. these days. Uh, 
is, is it still a good strategy to to try and <laughs> define your own category because you say how much work you put into it with creating content would that necessarily work in in 2019 or i don't know in, in fact i was asked myself that same question a couple of weeks ago and i went to google trend you know google trends yeah. And I put in inbound marketing, content marketing, account-based marketing, and conversational marketing. Those are the four that I could think of. I was a little surprised to see it. So we started inbound marketing. A little bit after our starting inbound marketing, another group of folks started content marketing. And that did well and was kind of a rival in, in the meme world to inbound marketing and went by it, actually. And so more people over time and today are searching on the term content marketing than inbound marketing. Not by a lot, but a little bit more. Both of which have kind of flattened out, which surprised me a bit. I thought they were still both on the mm. rise. But if you look at content marketing search vol vol uh, volume a year ago and inbound marketing search volume a year ago, it's about the same. I looked up account-based marketing and conversational marketing, both of which I thought would be starting to really come up the knee of the yeah. curve. They're not. They're pretty low, like an order of magnitude lower than inbound and content. So I'm not sure it works. I'm sure that uh, the account-based marketing crew and the in the conversational marketing crew are working very hard at those terms because they are on my mind at least. Yeah. But it doesn't look like they've tipped on the internet the way even inbound or content marketing have tipped. Do, do you think that people are just... Um, the, I don't know the, if people are immune to these uh, uh, things. That, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't know. There, there's so many different buzzwords in uh, marketing yeah. and so many different <laughs> ways to explain different types of marketing. Yes. This is a new trend. This is works. You've got authenticity and being human is is the new thing. Yes, um, which I agree with, and I think is is I very is, is very important. But I think marketers and the marketing community community in general have had so many of these. Maybe buzzwords. they're just the community is might just be over it. I will say I agree with both. Well, I agree with all of them. I think inbound is right. I think content is right. I think account base is right, and I think uh, conversational is right. I just wonder if there's a buzzword fatigue out there i'm not sure what's going on yeah you're right when did you start the partner program at hubspot our agency partner program? yeah yeah we started that really early maybe 2007 or 8 so okay. it's been around a while the really big important part of our business that you can buy hubspot through hubspot and do inbound in hubspot yourself or you need some help and you want somebody to help you do it or you want just to do it for you you buy through and there's 3,000 plus agencies out there who can help you with it. Why in those early days of HubSpot did you start the agency program and why do you still put so much emphasis on it? Do people still need agency support to be able to, to run HubSpot? That's the exact question I asked myself back in 2007, 2008. I thought we were going to make marketing so easy and so reachable for mere mortals um, that they wouldn't need agencies anymore. But I was wrong about that. Agencies provide a really crucial role. And even if many times agencies aren't doing all of the marketing for someone, but maybe you need some help on the content side and the agency is creating content for you. Or maybe you need some help setting up your workflows or branding or different parts of your marketing. And agencies have expertise and creativity on the technology side and the creativity side that not all companies have. And so I think they're very much here to stay, if not, if not growing. And so... I get over myself on that assumption uh, pretty early and leaned into it, and it's it's really really paid off. And some of these agencies we've been working with, we were with B two B Marketing Lab yesterday. A guy named Bob Deersley and his uh, daughter Verity, they've been partners of ours. I think since like 2010, and so we've gotten to know them quite well. And our businesses are sort of woven together. They're one of our diamond partners, and uh, 
it's really rewarding to see them grow and us grow side by side. And yeah. one of the one of the most rewarding parts of HubSpot is seeing those. So many of these agencies we started with were, you know, two, three people when we started. And now we're 20, 30, 50, 70 people. Uh, and uh, that's been really cool. What makes the relationship between HubSpot and an agency comp- complementary? It works extremely well. We, we see ourselves as a software vendor and... We don't want to be a professional services company that helps you implement it. And that's exactly what the agencies do. They, they are the arms and the legs. They make the software come alive. They help people with their marketing strategy, their branding, the email marketing, all their marketing, conversational marketing. You name the three-letter acronym, they're good at it. And that's not a business we're in. We want that the community to take care of that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I'm going to throw in another curveball question sure. for you. So you've got agencies <laughs> yep. who bring lots of expertise to companies what would you say is best for a a startup company or any any marketing department should they invest in an agency or should they invest in building out their in-house team i think you probably end up with both um particularly at the beginning you're gonna make your first marketing hire that first marketing hire is probably a generalist not great let's say at any aspect of marketing but good at a bunch of aspects and you might want to get great at a couple pieces. Like you might want to get start a great podcast, for example. And maybe an agency spins that up and helps you get the guests and gets the technology set up and sticks the founder in front of the microphone with the guests and really wires that up. I suspect early on you're going to want both. Yeah. Okay. So an, an, another interesting question. This is something I think about a lot. If you're a young marketer or someone in marketing for me i've seen a shift to marketers being generalists they're having skills in all areas you get people that can produce video they can produce podcasts and audio they can make nice graphics they can write great content they understand seo yep um and that they can do it just as well as the specialist so if you're a young marketer would you say become get a general knowledge of everything and specialize or would you say just build up your skills so you are a multifaceted marketer? I like T-shaped employees versus mm. I-shaped employees. And T-shaped employees are pretty good at a whole bunch of stuff and go really deep in one area. The good thing about marketing these days is there's a lots and lots of areas where you can go deep and go down the rabbit hole of goodness. SEO is an area, social, video, just building up workflows and all that, that stuff is really key. Uh, so there's just a million areas where you can go deep. I'm not sure the answer to that question. Here's what I would say, though, if I were a young marketer. I'd learn how to code, even at the, a rudimentary level. I Somebody said it, and I'm, I'm maybe going to butcher the quote, but somebody said, uh, twenty in the future, 20 years from now, either all jobs are either going to be telling a computer what to do or a computer is going to be telling that person what to do. And I'm going to be retired by the time that's true. But uh, I would much rather be telling a computer what to do than having a computer tell me what to do. And so many industries and so many jobs now are really being disrupted by software. And even platforms like HubSpot, which we create to be consumer friendly on the front end, we expose APIs to. And man, you can do powerful and creative and neat stuff if you know how to make magic with those APIs. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think nowadays there's so many resources out there. We yeah. couldn't be living in a in a better age for someone who wants to learn something mm-hmm. and not spend a huge amount doing it. 
That couldn't be <laughs> couldn't be couldn't be more true. Like you just show, show up at HubSpot Academy, and we've got courses on every aspect of marketing. You can get certified on those aspects. It's so much easier to learn anything these days mm. than it was when I was early in my career. You literally have to like go back to school to learn something. There was no Google. There was no YouTube. There was none of this online free training. It's uh, it's a great it's. By the way, I see it in the employees at HubSpot. I am amazed by how fast they can learn new skills and whatnot, mm -hmm. and how deep they can go in skills. Uh, just right out of school, they they know a lot coming out of school, and bam, a year later, they have these awesome superpowers that they develop very, very quickly. It's It was very different than when I was uh, earlier in my career. You, you touched upon then the, the HubSpot Academy, which is brilliant. Our agency used it a lot to, yep. to train people up. That must have been quite an investment for you to, to build out all that resource. Yep. Why is it you put that investment into building out your own resources to, to teach people inbound marketing and how to use HubSpot? Did that investment pay off? Uh, yeah, it, it's very much our, our inbound philosophy is give away a lot and use that free remarkable stuff to pull people in so we give away content on our blog of course uh we give away content uh in the form of the academy we give away uh code in the in the in sort of our free crm products so we give a lot away and we use that free stuff that we give away to pull people in and if they enjoy it and they took a bunch of classes they're like oh this is great Maybe I'll check their software out, and then they check our software using our free software. Then they upgrade to the paid version. Like, that's just the way HubSpot and inbound works. So we're very aggressive on giving away uh, tons and tons and tons of free training, and uh, the payback back is absolutely enormous on it. Interesting, you talk about giving away stuff for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've I've heard you talk about the the freemium model a little bit. What what are your thoughts on the freemium model? Obviously. Uh, with the the sales products you have, yeah, my, my my I'm very bullish on the freemium model. I just I just think in my daily life, the way I use the technology. Let's take Spotify or Dropbox. You name the the stuff I use in my personal life. Almost everything is freemium these days or a long trial. And the way people are buying business to business software really mirrors the way they buy it in their personal life. They want their business software to behave that way, the business model to behave that way, the UI to behave that way. If you're not doing that, I think you're going to kind of get stuck behind. And so we're leaning hard into it. And we started our sales business by giving away a free CRM. We actually do have a free um, marketing product. It's a little thin. Uh, stay tuned. In the next couple of weeks, uh, there may be an exciting announcement on that side. Uh, but... Um, there's uh, there is a free marketing product that does do some cool stuff. I, I'd encourage you to check it out. It's pretty cool. Um, but um, we, we believe that we we're, we want people to come in the HubSpot, and we think about a free CRM. CRM in my mind includes service, sales, and marketing. It's that entire customer relationship, and there's a free layer for each one. Yeah, um, I, I've used both the free and paid versions of HubSpot and. I think that anyone who's who's starting a business should use HubSpot as their hub, essentially. Yeah, that's what we the idea. <laughs> be, because you can use it straight away for yep. free. You can put forms on your website. Yep. Um, you can get going for nothing and do some cool stuff. Like you'd be, I, we're trying to make it to the point where it's like you would be batshit crazy not to just start with HubSpot, and then we try to make it so mm. good and powerful that they keep moving from free to starter to pro to enterprise, and we grow with them. 
that's that's what we, that's what we're up to. We've been up to we're that model's been in place for about two years. It's working really well. Yeah. Well, what what is next for HubSpot in in the next couple of years? Then sure, there's a couple of transitions. There's one transition that we're coming through now, and one we're about to start. The transition we're coming through now is the shift from kind of a lead management uh, marketing automation system, inbound marketing system to more of a customer experience system. And the rationale for that is the lead, the sort of lead management marketing automation system made sense when we started HubSpot. The real opportunity that the internet provided people was to give away this free content and pull people in. That's why we started HubSpot. That's why we built our marketing product. I think the big opportunity today is a very different one than it was that back then. And I just think of myself in my daily routine, and you probably heard me say this, mm. but like when I wake up in the morning, I wake up on a Casper mattress, and then I put on my Warby Parker glasses, and then I listen to Spotify and, and listen to some music on there, and I shave with my Dollar Shave Club razor. I put on a Stitch Fix outfit, and then I take an Uber to work. And that's my daily morning routine. And every morning I buy from those same vendors and use their products. And I've replaced um, their predecessors in all six of those cases. And I think it's personally very fascinating what's going on because all those companies are pretty new startups. All of them are growing like a weed. All of their, them are in the billions of dollars of valuation. And they've all done it not with a better product. In fact, they almost all have the exact same darn product as their predecessor, but with a better end-to-end -end experience. It's lighter, that's subscription-based, that relies less, ironically, on humans and more on automation. And that's where I think the arbitrage opportunity is today that the internet provides, is on the creating these great experiences. Today, I see the great companies out there they're not necessarily technology disruptors like companies were 10 years ago. They're experience disruptors. They're really disrupting the buying and using, and the, they're making these delicious experiences. That's why sort of we moved from an application for marketing to sort of a CRM suite. Um, that's going along really well. We have work to do, but it's, it's progressing. Our next wave, and we're kind of a little bit into this wave, but the other kind of trend I see is when I walk into companies five, six, seven years ago, they had very little software. They used, you know, it's a hundred person company. Maybe they use 15 different apps inside their company. Today, when I walk into that same company, they've got three, 400 applications. It's been a SaaS explosion in these companies. And historically, HubSpot's really been kind of close. Like we've competed with everyone and we just use our software, don't use theirs. And Honestly, it's like fighting gravity. Um, and so we're flipping to a much more open system and embracing all of these SaaS applications. We're an API first company now. We've got over 300 companies in our Connect program that have built slick integrations to HubSpot. And our customers are really taking to it. And so our typical customer today has, you know, five or six different applications woven into the HubSpot hub and creating these experiences with not just HubSpot, yeah. but these others. So a tremendous amount going on in HubSpot right now, actually. Like the innovation is uh, flowering. Yeah, and you spoke a little bit about in the recent earnings call going from um, 
all in one platform to an all on one platform. I, I really like that. And what you're just saying there about being able to plug APIs in and when did sort of that shift happen and why? Because HubSpot were very focused on making best in class software yeah. and just creating as much as you can in the, yep. in, the, in this platform. Whereas there's other companies coming up, they're, they're more agile. They're going to be able to make a better product essentially. So when did you start to make that shift? I think it was it was two years ago we started we've we've had it in our heads for a while but it's two years ago we started really doing it um, and a couple of things led to it one is this explosion of SaaS inside of our customers and just hearing about it from them the second is just walking into accounts and hearing them talk about Google Analytics uh, like I'd walk into an account and be like oh you don't need Google Analytics you can use HubSpot and they they just kind of look at me funny like you know we're gonna always use Google Analytics it's we're just used to it. We kind of love it. It's never going away. And yeah, you can do most of it, but there's two or three things that Google Analytics has that you don't have that we really like. And by the way, they keep coming up with those two or three new things mm -hmm. and you keep chasing them. And same thing with like WordPress and so many of these other applications, like they're here to stay and, uh, and there's communities around them. And so it's just like, we are just fighting gravity here. Let's, how do we add value to WordPress and how do we not compete with it and so we built a really really nice integration to wordpress instead of that uh and um then we hired a really clever guy named scott brinker and scott was a guy we went to business school with ironically who was at another marketing startup and his hobby he's got a very odd hobby is collecting uh the names and backgrounds of marketing SaaS companies mm -hmm. and he's got a list now of over six thousand of them <laughs> and he makes this really small graphic with all six thousand I'll, I'll, I'll put the graphic in the show notes so. <laughs> yeah all the uh six thousand little logos in there of all the six thousand different uh, marketing applications and just talking with him he's like make these guys your friends you know these should not be your enemies there's a lot of innovation happening outside the walls and hubspot that is going to be really powerful and entrepreneurs are always going to come up with new cool stuff and make them your friends and then he had a really good quote he said uh you're either a, a hub or a spoke which I liked a lot, especially because we're HubSpot. He's like, if you want to build all this stuff yourself, you're going to be a, a spoke on somebody else's hub. You need to be the hub and have all these other things plug in the HubSpot. And I think he's very, very right about that. And so he runs our uh, he runs that part of our business now. He's really done a nice job on it. Yeah, so uh, a question I had, which I guess um, has sort of been answered, is as as a larger company now, a public company, how do you stay agile when you've got a lot of smaller companies, Drift, for example, who are making products that might directly compete? How do you stay agile when creating new products? But it seems to me there's been more of a shift in can we maybe accommodate these companies yeah. a little bit more? Would you say that's... That's exactly it. So Drift is a good example where we, we think that some level of conversational marketing capability should be in our platform, just mm. like some level of analytics capabilities, some level of website building capabilities. Many companies will just use our conversational marketing stuff. But let's say you are Airbnb and you're using HubSpot yeah. and you really like it. But man, you want some really advanced conversational marketing stuff that HubSpot doesn't do. Gosh, we are thrilled that Drift's a partner and uh, Intercom's a partner as well. Yeah. So let them in and yeah we'll compete a little bit on the edges but overall i think it's good for the customer and i think it's uh it's overall good for us so that's a pretty good example where we're letting the innovation uh um kind of bloom um 
and there's lots of lots and lots of other categories like that I really like that approach. I, I really, really do. Um, I'd like to talk about whether inbound marketing still works. Uh, yeah, I think it works incredibly well, in fact, better than ever. I just think the whole approach of, of pulling people in versus interrupting them really, really works incredibly well. Uh, we just see it with HubSpot every day. Like If you look at our analytics inside of HubSpot, the number of visitors we get from organic search to Google would astound downed you mm. on the millions and millions of visitors we get from it a lot of them of course are branded but most of them are unbranded search and it is remarkable what's going on there what i like about that is not only do we get all that traffic from google but that traffic is really driven from content we've created over the years in links going into that content that are increasing our authority and then we use some very specialized techniques inside of hubspot to make sure we're getting found properly and those are permanent assets kind of on our marketing balance sheet that uh that will never ever go away um and search volume of course will come up and down and the algorithms will change but we have so much domain authority in there same thing around the content and social like every day someone's retweeting an article that i wrote five years ago mm -hmm. like there are permanent assets in there that have a very 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 long uh half-life uh so it works incredibly well. Your success, I believe, on the internet is still very much about the width of your brain, not the width of your wallet. Uh, advertising online is not cheap, um, and it's a hard, really hard way to scale your business. Uh, so I think it works uh, works works really well. Yeah. So you, uh, HubSpot have had um, quite a few years building that domain authority. Yep. For new companies or companies that are just starting out with their marketing departments what would you suggest they do because they, they can create all of this content but it might take a while for it to to work organically or you say they or or they can use paid which it, as you say is very expensive so what what is the best thing for new marketing teams to do or new companies to do yeah let's just talk about the content side because the content yeah. side still works it's changed though a couple in a couple ways it's changed it used to be what would work was Right, spend a half an hour a day every day of the week and pump out seven articles that week. And you could just kind of jam it out there and it might not spread on social, but you would get found in Google. Google is wise to that approach. Uh, and flooding the search engines with content doesn't work anymore. You're much, much, much better off spending three and a half hours writing one great article a week uh, that will get links into it, will get found in Google, will spread in social media. So it's a quality versus quantity game today. Uh, my second thought on content is uh, text really does still work. Long form text works particularly well. I found online really thoughtful pieces that you spend three and a half hours on. Video works remarkably well. Mm -hmm. And creating a YouTube channel works incredibly well. Audio works really well. Let's just say you're in the business of making left-handed monkey wrenches. I bet you'll be the first person to create a podcast around left-handed monkey wrenches. If you're running a marketing agency and you're starting a marketing podcast and competing with you, and I suspect how many marketing podcasts are there right now? There are plenty. There are a lot. It's, it's a little tricky. You've probably got to come up with a niche to uh, break out. But uh, starting a podcast is a very, very good way to do it. The other thing I would say about content is you're creating content out there and you publish it and you publish it uh let's say you come up with some really good content you publish it on your blog and you really really like it if it starts to do well online if people are starting to for clearly forward it in the traffic spiking on it 
that's a good place to use advertising to amplify the really good content. I like that strategy a lot. Um, the other thing I would do is continue to invest in social. Uh, people live in Instagram. I mean, half of my friends, I would say, are addicted to Instagram. Half are, they just are in it all day. I just see them when I'm hanging out with them, like in and out, in and out all day in Instagram. Get really good at Instagram stories. It works. Um, the click-through rate's not great, but the impressions can be fantastic there. A small percentage of the population is, but an important one is addicted to Twitter. Get really good at it. You know, build a following. Um, it's not that hard. It's certainly not a lot of money. And Facebook certainly isn't dead. Uh, and so I would be investing in social. All those channels work. They're a little more pay-to-play than they used to be, but uh, but the organic game can work, and then you can use paid to like speed up the organic game. I think all of those are fantastic insights, um, especially pick a niche, going into that, keep creating content and doubling down on the content that's working well. Yep. Um, at Inbound 2018, in your keynote, you killed the funnel, the ye old funnel, <laughs> and it in introduced the flywheel. For, just for the record, I retired the Retired, the funnel. retired. Yeah, so yeah. The, the funnel's done good work. We don't want to kill yeah. uh, the ye old funnel. The funnel's, been, the funnel's a, a good old lad, uh, and, and he'll be missed. Um, there'll be no killing of the funnel. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, if I think through time where the, uh, where the real power is in, inside a company to, to grow, it's shifted a lot. Like earlier in my career, let's say from 1990 when I had my first job to 2006, it was a, it's really a sales-driven world. Uh, there wasn't a lot of information out there that a potential buyer could access about your products or your company. Um, and so they had to rely on the sales rep for everything, for references, for to talk to your founder, for product specs, for discounts, for you name it. The sales rep had kind of the power in the relationship. And I marked 2006 just because when we started HubSpot, but of course, it's not a clear line in the sand. But around 2006, in my head, the power started shifting where... Marketing had more power in my mind than sales did. And the reason marketing had more power was that more and more of the decision-making process was really done on your website in Google and social media that you had the product specs on your website. You had the pricing on your website. Uh, people could connect with your founder on LinkedIn. Like The power shifted. You didn't have to go through the sales rep to, as a gatekeeper to get that information. Sales rep was still important, but their role seemed to be changing in marketing in content, in the website, in all that did so much more of the convincing. And so I think it behooved a company to kind of shift from sales to marketing. Today, I see it shifting again. And when I talk to people, and I say, you know, why'd you buy HubSpot? Why did you buy? Why'd you, why'd you, why'd you subscribe to a Marketing Mashup podcast? Of course, marketing and sometimes, yes, of course, sales. But gosh, word of mouth. It's always been there, but it's just much stronger today. And part of it, let's say with Marketing Mashup, you go and look up podcasts and, and there's a star rating system. So that's a word of mouth. Almost every industry has some sort of star rating system in it now. Like my industry has G2 Crowd. You would be batshit crazy not to look at G2 Crowd before you bought HubSpot. There are hundreds, thousands of people reviewing our product that have no connection to us. And you can look to see what they say and look how many stars we have versus our competitors like that is word of mouth like exposed in a way that never has been like of course yelp did it whatever 15 years ago every darn niche industry has their own yelp these days it's not only that though 
We track something called the Trust Index at HubSpot, where we survey random people and say, who are you more likely to trust? And we put marketing on there, sales on there. We put doctors and firemen and politicians, all kinds of stuff. And what we've noticed about trust is it's changed, particularly since 2016, where institutions writ large are trusted less so than they ever have been. And part of that is the political environment that we live in in the United States and here, of course, in, uh, in England. And, and what's happened is people trust the, the, the politicians less. They trust the government less. They trust <laughs> a lot of people trust religions less. Not everyone, of course. Um, a lot of people just don't trust the media like they used to. People certainly don't trust social media like they used to. There's this like wholesale lack of trust going on and kind of a crisis in trust. And part of who's been hit by that are sellers and marketers. People don't trust sellers and marketers as much as they used to. So if we look at marketers, I'm going to get the number. I don't have the numbers exactly right, but they were a five out of 100 index uh, two years ago. And now there are three. And salespeople were a four on that index two years ago. And now they're a three. And so both have dropped at the same time colleagues like somebody you work with and trust has gone from a 50 to a 70 and so it's just like who do you trust well you trust your family you trust your friends and you trust your colleagues those are going up all institutions are going down and so that kind of just led me to think like it was sales then it was marketing now it's like your customers your customers not only pay you but they do the darn convincing for you through g2 through crowd through wherever it would be and so the funnel to me just seemed like a broken metaphor where the customer's at the bottom and sort of gets pooped out of the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. And I think the customer, no, 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 the customer is the one that fills the top of the funnel. And so I came up with a new metaphor. I didn't come up with it. Jeff Bezos came up with it and I borrowed it called the flywheel where the customer is very much part of the decision-making process. And it's more of a flywheel motion the way you build your business than it is a uh, funnel motion and i really like it <laughs> well i i think that's a fantastic place to wrap it up um i've really enjoyed this conversation and there's been a lot of insightful bits that we can pull out from it so brian thank you so much for your time um i hope you have a safe flight back to to ireland and then then the us thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure Brilliant. Thank you for listening to the Martin Mashup podcast. I really appreciate you making it this far into the episode. If you did enjoy it, I'd love you to leave a review on iTunes. And if you can, share it on Twitter and LinkedIn using the hashtag Martin Mashup. If you have shared it and left a review, I'd love to send you something. So send me a message on Twitter at Jay McKinvan and I'll be sure to get something out to you. Thank you again and have a lovely day.